This is Philosophy Takes on the News. Hello and welcome to Philosophy Takes on the News. I'm Simon Kirchin, a philosopher based at the University of Kent. We're recording on the morning of Thursday the 27th of October 2022. This is the week that saw a changing of the guard as Rishi Sunak became UK Prime Minister and the UK's first of Indian heritage. Russia's invasion of Ukraine continued with differing reports of exactly what's happening in the east of the country and a 20th Party Congress in China concluded with Xi Jinping securing a third term as General Secretary. So this week we're going to think about the absolute state of the UK government again, (laughs) Uh, thinking particularly about legitimacy. We'll think about negotiations and we're going to think about art and protest. We'll also see what else we get onto as always. Of course, even in our short absence between recordings, we've seen significant changes in personnel, as I've just indicated. But the same questions keep coming back. Are the replacements any good? Will they be up to the task? Or are we just stuck in an endless doom loop of failing mediocrity? Which, of course, brings me to this week's guests. Joining me today, we have Josh Fostenza, Senior Lecturer in Philosophy at the University of Sheffield. Hi, Josh. Hi. Happy to be back. Uh, And we've got Gerald Lang, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Leeds. Hi, Gerald. Nice to be back. Hi, Simon. Hi, Josh. Uh, Great to have the two of you with us. Okay, so let's get to our first item. We keep on coming back to it, but UK politics, particularly the febrile swamp of Westminster, does grab one's attention. In the wake of yet another Tory ballot, people are wondering yet again about the Conservative Party mandate from the 2019 election, with some commentators and citizens calling for a general election immediately. Others disagree, of course, worried about economic stability and also confident that the mandate still holds. Uh, Gerald, you raised the issue of mandates and legitimacy for us. Do you want to say a little bit more about the issue for us? Sure. So it's a very common claim. It's been made, I think, by all the um, opposition leaders recently that the mandate for this government uh, has now weakened or is non-existent. Hence, we should call a general election. Now, it's not quite clear what the source of the weakened mandate is or how we should interpret it. Uh, Because, I mean, look, the fact is, our constitution doesn't provide for the direct election of the prime minister. We uh, elect our MPs, and the MPs that belong to the majority party form the government, and the prime minister is simply the leader of that party. So our involvement in who the prime minister is, is always indirect, notwithstanding that our politics has become more presidential, there's a huge amount of attention on the prime minister. And in fact, sometimes the news story suggests that that's all that's really going on, maybe because that's where the buck stops. Nonetheless, we're not involved directly in the election of the prime minister. So so what what does it really amount to? It's it's not clear. Um, One, I mean, one possibility is that the changing faces make it more likely that there'll be divergence between the government's policies and the contents of the 2019 manifesto. But even if that's the case, um, I'm not sure I can really 
pinpoint a way in which the mandate has weakened or expired. I mean, I suppose the, the, the point is, as it seems to me, is that if government gets elected on one platform and then does slightly different things, that, that's an input into democratic politics. But I don't think it represents the corruption uh, or the undermining of democratic politics because circumstances change, uh, priorities change. And the, the point is, even if Johnson had kind of endured in office but was making different decisions, would we be saying that the mandate had expired simply because he was diverging from the 2019 manifesto. So I, I, I think, I mean, I think my, I'm tempted to think that when we talk about the weakened mandate, it's just a, we should understand it in expressive terms. Um, it's a kind of way of reporting our stupefied reaction at all recent shenanigans to this government, or it might be a way of expressing our conviction that these people are, you know, incompetent or dishonest or, or even dangerous. Um, so please, God, let there be a general election, which gives us a chance to boot them out. That I mean, I, th- I think that's that's an intelligible thought, but that just seems to be de- democratic politics as usual. I don't think there's a separate thing, the weakened or disappearing mandate, which explains why there should be a general election. So it just might be that um, they don't deserve to be in office, Many people think that it's a, a kind of fallen government living on borrowed time. That might also be true. But in a way, that's just democratic politics as usual. Yeah, I find it fascinating. I think there's a, a, a rather big cultural divide between those of us uh, maybe raised in an American or a French context compared to the British context, in part because in both those countries, so France and the United States of America, there, there is a sense in which it's uh, implied and sometimes explicitly stated there is a kind of delegate relationship between the people and the elected officials, in which case the mandate is seen as personal for the elected official and platform on which they're elected is seen as sort of the content of the contract that's passed between uh, those who vote and those who represent the voters. Uh, Whereas in Britain, there is a a great deal of discomfort with that notion. In in my experience, I've heard this very often. It's been reported to me by many of my friends and colleagues that uh, that that sort of seems alien, that in a way, the the model here is a representative model, whereby uh, when we say that, we just sort of send off these representatives to make decisions on our behalf in general. And then the, the, the kind of talk of a mandate, the talk of the manifesto as being the um, the constitutional ground in some way, in, in the absence of a very strongly codified constitution, it ends up being that uh, the manifesto does a lot of work in saying, well, this is part of the legitimacy that that is animating a government because look what people voted, they knew the, go- the, the party uh, that they supported was going to do these things, and therefore this is sort of the, the moral basis for a contract between uh, the people and some representatives, but there still is a sense in which representatives here uh, are seen as uh, very much acting uh, on their own judgment. Uh, and in fact, that's part of their responsibility. I heard a great deal of people uh, complaining about uh, the the referenda. So uh, both the Scottish referendum and the uh, uh, in 2014 and the, the Brexit referendum in 2016 on the basis that it was inappropriate to ask the people directly this kind of question, that these were complicated questions that should be dealt with by experts of some kind, which I guess they assumed uh, the political class to be those kind of experts, which, which again, I, I find funny and strange. I, I tend to not think of politicians as experts at politics. But uh, but I think here there, there is often this sense that that's what's going on. 
Now, just to, to interrogate a little bit, uh, I don't know which one is, is, is the more democratic one or the, the correct one. I'm, I'm not going to make an argument for that here. But what I find interesting is the analogy with contracts. So uh, when uh, we engage as private citizens in a contract with another private citizen, uh, there is actually a, a, tri- a tripartite relationship. We, we tend to forget this, but uh, it isn't just that I want something and you want something and we make a deal. It's also that we're in a context in which there's some authority, some external authority that uh, is a, a guarantor of some kind uh, of the fact that this contract will be respected. So if one of us doesn't do it, we can take the other one to court. <clears throat> when you buy a house, for example, you know, someone uh, on, on two sides of the, of the contract doesn't fulfill the terms of, of that contract, there is a uh, kind of enforcing legal entity that can do something to, to make that contract meaningful. Well, when we uh, elect uh, our representatives, there is a sense in which there just isn't uh, that third kind of entity, something external to the uh, two-part relationship to ensure uh, that the contract is fulfilled. So it's it's either us in the future, we can vote them out next time. That's sort of what, one way of looking at it. Or, and this is this is where, you know, I think it is expressive of, a, of a, at least a covert Republican model of thinking about these things, uh, or it's in the person, you know, the um, that third party actually isn't the representative as representative. It's the representative as their private identity. It's a bit like the two bodies of of, of the crown, you know, well, we have that with our elected representatives. They're both the office that they hold once they have it, but they're also a person. And so when it is no longer the same person that holds the office, there is a sense of dislocation. Uh, and, and it's not that, you know, that that person individually has sort of all the authority to ensure the contract is fulfilled or can punish because in some sense, obviously, they have an interest that they're an interested party, they're not neutral. But nevertheless, there's a kind of uh, a moral I think a, a sense that we can ask the individual, okay, but when we, when you were in office, did did you fulfill what you said you would do? And that's different than asking the representative. And in fact, you know, when you see people who've been politicians retire from politics, and you then see how they answer questions about what they did when they were in office, you get very different answers than when they're in office. And, and I think that's part of what we're uh, expecting in a relationship with those who govern us. We expect them to have that kind of personal stake in their capacity to fulfill the contract. And, and that's not as high a bar as having a third party that can uh, make sure the contract is fulfilled, but it's still an important bar that we can actually recognize a moral individual. And so when you shift the people uh, who are uh, holding offices and you shift them in such a way that that connection with the, the voting uh, electorate uh, becomes looser and looser and more and more distant, uh, then then there is this sense of like, well, well, you know, who are these people? And did they ever promise us anything? And can we even hold them individually morally accountable? Because in some sense, they're not the same people at all. I suppose, I suppose a lot of us do think of the connections here in terms of a delegate relationship. But 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 yes, it's a representative democracy, um, which might, which might be somewhat inconsistent with our political habits or the political habits we've acquired of appraising government of engaging with it and media and and discussion but there has to be a form of accountability something like the fulfillment of a promise made seems to be the easiest way of uh, thinking about that relationship thinking about what accountability amounts to however i do think there are limitations to it so i mean i mean imagine the government you know, delivering perfectly on its manifesto promises. Now, someone who voted for them on the basis of, of that last manifesto is now free not to vote for them. <laughs> they can simply change their mind. Um, other people can vote against them regardless of how they delivered on their manifesto. 
So it's not as though democratic politics can be understood in terms of the execution, flawed or otherwise, of a contract. Because if they honoured the contract, if they honoured what they say they'd do in the manifesto, and that was to be understood as a contract, then we'd struggle, I think, to make sense of dissenting voters. I mean, we'd ask, well, what are you doing voting against the slot? They've done what they said they'd do. But but we know, of course, in advance that that, that voters can, you know, are, are free exactly to vote for who they want. And, and I think that by itself weakens the contractual idea, even though it's very tempting to think that the fulfillment of a promise is, you know, um, a pretty good way of understanding what democratic accountability must amount to. Now, I mean, the, 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 I mean, the, the, the remarks about the the split between a public office and a private person and a personal stake or investment. I, I mean, I find that really interesting. But I suppose if we've already separated the private person from the occupant of the office, then it doesn't, I mean, it matters less that that office then go to another private person who, you know, dons the clothes of that office and and incurs the commitments of that office. Because after all, we're not talking about the private person, we're talking about the occupant of the office. And whoever occupies that office can be assumed to inherit the responsibilities and burdens of that office and to carry out that office conscientiously. Well, that's the idea anyway. Yeah, just some comments from me. And they are comments because I don't know where I kind of stand on on this. I think you've both made kind of interesting points and cases. I suppose the the thing that runs through my head, though, which probably is a diagnosis of of why we've got um, various calls over the last recent weeks and months, and then uh, why we've got kind of your two suggestions, is that voting is a very, very ambiguous process, right? So when you say what did you vote for or who did you vote for? There are multiple answers. I mean, in, in any voting system, but let's just focus on on the on the UK and think about a general election. I'm either voting for a local candidate or voting against a particular candidate. I'm voting for a party or against a party. I'm voting for a manifesto or against a manifesto or voting for some parts of a manifesto that I like and I might be indifferent or actively against other parts, but I definitely want to make sure that there's there's more of X or there's a ban on Y. And then there's the the kind of the national politicians where I'm voting for a prime minister or against a candidate or uh, as national leader or for a cabinet of clown or against a cabinet of clowns and voting for a, a team. Right? I mean, there's, I mean, you can carry on, but those are, seem to me the main ones. And so then when you kind of then layer that into the things we've been talking about, the, the personal mandate versus the office, and then the the thing that you sneaked in, I thought, Gerald, right? So when there's the fulfillment of a promise, right, at the next general election, hey, they did well on the manifesto, but actually what you're then voting on is the new manifestos, right? So then it might, so there's a question about whether voting is backward looking or forward looking. And so because of all of that, I think there's so much ambiguity here that um, I think just thinking about what you said, Joel, the straightforward they haven't got a mandate, I think is really, really tricky to to justify because um, uh, it's it's not obvious what what they would have to be in order for the mandate to be fulfilled. Once you you know then acknowledge that events are going to happen. I mean that as you were running through and actually as we were planning this this episode, 
one example that runs through from from recent political history is Blair and the new Labour government in Iraq, which of course wasn't mentioned in any manifesto. I say recent political history. My son is actually studying the Blair Brown years as part of his history A level rather than his politics A level. Uh, but there we are. We shouldn't feel old. Um, and so that's that's a really interesting question where you could say, well, he has no he has no manifesto. Um, commitment for that no mandate for that and so he had to go there was big debates in parliament which is exactly what should be there was indeed there were televised discussions of it as well to try to win the people around in kind of politics rather than voting um and i just think that there's this yeah go on josh i I like what you're i like the way in which we're thinking about this i think we're being very reasonable and we're being circumspect and we're attending to all the relevant kind of concerns but but in some sense i think we're yeah i think we're we're missing something about the nature of the democratic relationship. But before I jump into that, I, I want to throw in the fact that there's a good book uh, for people who feel the way uh, you've been feeling, Simon, by Aiken and Bartels, which is Democracy for Realists. And basically their claim is that there, uh, there, there is no such thing as the will of the people, that they're just, you know, no, how, however way you kind of cut it. And they use a lot of empirical uh, grounds for, for demonstrating this, that whatever measure we might want to use just fails to express a, a popular will. And they take this as at least an indication that we ought not be so enthusiastic about kind of more democracy as an answer to the problems of democracy. And they're particularly trying to rebut John Dewey. Now, John Dewey's my great hero. So, I, you know, let me make a case for why sometimes we need more democracy and sometimes it matters that uh, there is, if not necessarily the reality, at least the pretense of a, a democratic relationship bound by uh, something like uh, a contract or a promise that we take to be meaningful. And it might be purely expressive. So I, this is, you know, Gerald started with this, that we should see it as expressive. It might be purely expressive, but expressive of something more than the strictly uh, instrumental, strategic, momentary wish to have a general election right now, right? So uh, what would that be? Well, it would be that uh, we take ourselves to be in the type of relationship with the people who govern us, uh, whereby when there is a failure of accountability, when there is a sense that uh, we are not entirely convinced about uh, the, demo- the democratic process uh, being itself sufficiently democratic, that they hold themselves, that the, that the rulers hold themselves to account sufficiently to then trigger whatever mechanisms are available to them to convince us that it is. Now, and I really like the example of the war in Iraq and uh, the parliamentary proceedings, because actually part of the, uh, I think, uh, spectatorial, if you want to put this this way, spectatorial dimension of British politics is parliament, right? We get to see people debate with one another, various topics, and when the decision is itself very important or, or it feels uh, pregnant with political uh, consequences, we see usually the best of British politics, in my experience, right? As, as, a, as someone who was not raised here, when I saw the debates about the war in Iraq, the quality of debates was very high, both intellectually and rhetorically. There was really a, a moment uh, in which um, we saw uh, kind of politics at its best in uh, the House of Commons. Uh, and I think we found the same uh, kind of tenor of debate uh, during r- right, right around the, 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 the decision to prorogue Parliament in 2019 about the Brexit uh, deal. That, you know, there sort of was this sense that all of a sudden parliamentarians were no longer speaking on the basis of their party affiliations. They were speaking as deliberative agents really trying to get to the best decision. Now, they... That doesn't mean the best decision won the day, but the we saw as citizens people who were trying really hard to make really good decisions on our behalf. And I think that part of what we're experiencing right now 
is uh, precisely the opposite of that in a in a in a conservative party that's consumed by its own ideological commitments by its own sense of its lack of talent to renew various offices uh, that they currently hold uh, its sense that uh, in fact those who would be best placed to win elections unfortunately are people who have already acted quite badly when they held offices uh, and so you know they're they're consumed by a whole uh, a whole series of contradictions that have nothing to do with making good decisions for the country and that are not translated in open parliamentary debate. You know, most of what's happened in the last uh, couple of uh, years, uh, one way or another, has been about the, the you know, the, the, the very important 1922 <laughs> committee, uh, you know, and you just go, why uh, is it that uh, the, the kind of politics animating the nation are not even public? In some sense, you know, the, the genuine deliberations that are going on, these letters going in, there the, are press briefings and media leaks and so on and so forth, but they don't happen in Parliament. We're not actually witnessing people debating with one another what is the best way for, for the nation. We just have a party that's basically unable to agree uh, with itself about which wing of the party should lead and which figurehead should take over and what kind of policies should be taken. And, and we don't even get to see them think about it out loud in a meaningful way, the way you would if it was the government itself subjecting itself to parliamentary scrutiny. And I think that that's kind of part of the, first, the the, the mystique of democracy. I think we need that. I, I don't think this is a, a something we can do without. I think in all democracies, there is a, a built up often uh, national or local mystique about how we get to witness as the people power being exercised legitimately. And right now, what we've been living with is the fact that they've done away with that, that, that we, we are not witnessing power articulating itself uh, to us, the people through parliament in an intelligent way that leads to various sorts of decisions. We're just sort of seeing uh, 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 something that's happening behind doors that we're not allowed to be in. We get to hear kind of the uh, the whispers of <laughs> what's happening behind that door. And then we see consequences, right? And, con- and big ones, really big ones, particularly with Liz Truss's premiership and, uh, and the mini budget. You know, the consequences in people's individual lives have been huge and will probably be uh, very significant for a while to come. And, and that is just uh, in itself, that, that, that is a breach of democratic trust, right? And so the Conservative Party, if they are Democrats in the sense of really being committed to parliamentary politics, do have a political uh, responsibility to restore trust in the institution, which they've been degrading. And, and, and I think that's uh, not accidental. I, th- I think, you know, every political system has some way in which it articulates itself to the public as being legitimate. And so this is legitimacy the way Max Weber spoke of legitimacy, not legitimacy in the sense of is it morally legitimate, but legitimacy in the sense is does it is it le- legitimated? Do we take it to be legitimate? And I, I actually think in this country, a lot of people are really uncertain about whether the people running the show right now have any of that kind of real legitimacy in the sense that the people take them to be legitimate. I think there's a real doubt that the people just don't take them to be legitimate. And unfortunately, the people can't do much about it until the government calls an election because they have such a big majority. And, you know, that's just how it is. I think that that's a real problem. It's a problem for a system. And unfortunately, with the threat from authoritarian regimes across the world rising and explicitly articulating the weaknesses of democracy, by the way, that's part of what they are doing, uh, as well as uh, being uh, bellicose and, and, and quite threatening, uh, there is a, a, an ideological agenda to show to the world that democracies are uniquely weak, that we'd be better off with these uh, strong men, usually, uh, who are uh, typically uh, somewhat xenophobic and uh, very willing to articulate national interest in the most radical terms and to show that decisions are swift 
and uh, and effective, and that we Democrats are in fact the ineffective, the weak ones. And so it's in that context that I think we really, you know, we as Democrats in this nation and descendants of uh, the parliamentary tradition, if you want to call it that, should really worry about a government that doesn't see itself as having to uh, demonstrate to the people the fact that it's legitimate and that it has reasonable grounds for doing what it does. And that we, in some way, are truly represented by uh, the government and the parliament of the day. I think that's a, there is a risk of at least I'm not saying you know genuinely happening there, but at least uh, bringing back the echoes of the kinds of feelings that were prevalent in England during the English Civil War. I don't think there'll be a civil war. That's not what I'm saying. But I think that feeling that there's a mismatch between uh, the, the the capacity to govern and those who use it, and the way in which the public, however way you shape the public at that that time, it was a smaller version of the public. How, but how those two go together? I think when you have that kind of doubt, it's profound. Let's mount the barricades, Josh, uh, uh, Gerald. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to much of what you say there, Josh. I mean, I guess it depends on the on the container we assign it to, and I think a lot of it's broadly consistent with what I take the references to weaken mandate to denote, which is a kind of distrust or despair about the ability of this government to genuinely govern us. And, and yes, I mean, you, you cite lots of evidence. So the House of Commons has been bypassed. We're seeing a lot of Sir Graham Brady uh, from the uh, influential 1922 committee, lots of shenanigans, stabbings in the back, you know, in a way that suggests that they don't really care about us. They just care about getting ahead. Um, there's further evidence of you know, shamelessness, like people... I mean, the revolving doors are such that you can be sacked for incompetence one week and brought back six days later, or that you can be ejected from office in July uh, for serial dishonesty and and fancy yourself, fancy your chances a few months later when your successor proved not to be up to it. So there's that as well. And, and I suppose there's a standing concern with politicians that, that you know, they're they're out for themselves. They're not out to help us or to serve us, but they're out for themselves. That's probably, I would say, the most commonly experienced kind of um, opinion on the doorstep. Um, it, it explains disengagement from politics. And so, of course, if they were willing to go back to the country, that would do something to assure us that they weren't simply out for themselves, but that they trusted in these democratic mechanisms and they trusted us to make the decisions about who should serve as the government. So I, I agree with all of that. Uh, it's just that our system doesn't quite provide for it. And I, I suppose how, you know, however our constitution got pieced together, it didn't envisage this kind of thing where we just had a kind of succession of governments and cabinets and we had far too much time squabbling, you know, at a time of grave national and global emergency. I mean, even for <laughs> a set of people who are, you know, where they were maximally free of distraction or scandal, and they're working all out. It'd still be a pretty worrying time, and and we we don't have that. We don't have that. We're we're paying much more attention to the kind of serial dysfunctions and failures of government than you know than the issues they're supposed to be dealing with, as scary and as concerning as they are. So so yeah. So but so but I continue to think that it's an expression of frustration. Uh, perhaps the people who are tasked with uh, governing us 
and perhaps with the system that allows them to remain there. Um, perhaps we're deep down, we're worried about both of these things. So then a, a quick question then to both of you, just to end this segment. Do you think then, you know, given what you both just said, that even if the the mandate may still remain, and, and you know, going back to Gerald's thought, let's say, that um, calling for a general election, there's no mandate, is just a kind of expressive, just of a deeper malaise. Is this only going to be solved by there being a general election, or can it be solved by a, a good year of stability and getting on with the business of government to, to think of you know what, what Rishi Sunak has said in the last couple of days? Well, that's a good question. I suppose I suppose you know the, the Conservative government have every incentive now to try to steady the ship, hope that voters' memories are short enough so that they'll overlook the summer and the early autumn and so that the Conservative Party regains its reputation for competence or stability. I mean, that, that it may not deserve that reputation, but that, that that's another issue. We're talking about perceptions. So I think the incentive is to govern stably before we go to the polls. I mean, it, I, I suspect it's a bit too late and that they'll lose the election, but they may not, I don't know. I mean, um, they may not lose it as badly as they would lose it uh, were we to go to the polls next week. So, I suppose it's a short term and a, and a kind of medium term way to look at this question. In the short term, Gerald said it perfectly. I, th- I think that is that is the the question for the Conservative Party, and if they can adopt a kind of stance of uh, sufficient stability and good sense, and I think this is the additional pressure, and find a way to convince the electorate that the mistakes made during the Trust administration can actually be fixed, which that I think is the hardest sell of all. I, I really actually think that when interest rates uh, rise that quickly, and when the bonds the bond market is is affected in that kind of way. I think that it has such big knock-on effects that to work itself out can take just, in fact, decades. Uh, it, it's hard to tell exactly when uh, there'll be some return to some idea of normal. Against the backdrop of already high inflation, we're already going to see interest uh, rate uh, hikes from uh, the central bank, just like we, we've seen in America and in, in Europe. You know, this was always bound to happen, and so it's just sort of having uh, really thrown. Uh, a, a Molotov cocktail on a, on, on a burning fire in some way in, in the economic sense and 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 the impact on individual consumers and and citizens because there's uh, not always a like for like relationship but oddly enough with interest rates in Britain where a lot of people own their houses and people tend to like to sell and buy houses that's a, a part of the culture uh, this is this is something that a lot of people will interact with more immediately than uh, than in other contexts right so th- there's something about that uh, and I think that's a hard sell so the medium term issue as I uh, see it is actually uh, I don't. I don't mean to sound moralistic because I, I don't. I don't tend to look at politics entirely moralistically. But I think that the language of honor uh, and the notion of, uh, of virtuous chivalry uh, is is actually a, uh, something that needs kind of renewal. Uh, and without that, we don't have a parliamentary system. Okay, great. Thanks, both of you. Let's leave it there, and we will see you in the next segment where we're going to be thinking about negotiations. <laughs> And welcome back. Uh, A quick advert, uh, which I've been giving at this stage of the pod in the last few weeks. 
Um, I also have another podcast series called Philosophy Gets Schooled, which is aimed at school students and teachers talking through lots of philosophical topics on school curricula with a group of teachers every episode. Please feel free to check it out. Um, Philosophy Gets Schooled is available wherever you get your podcasts, such as this one. Okay, so another topic. Early this week, a letter emerged that has been subsequently withdrawn. Um, It was a letter from the Progressive Democrat Caucus to the US uh, president to persuade him to pursue some form of negotiated settlement with Russia over Ukraine. Um, Josh, do you want to say a little bit more about this letter for us, please? Certainly. So I think what I found interesting isn't whether or not the letter was uh, well-judged or not. So I think in politics, as in life, timing is everything. And clearly, there was a sense in which the timing was was really wrong. And part of what's interesting in this case is that some people claim the letter was drafted much earlier, as early as June, and that it was responding to a situation as it was then, and that this was accidentally released by a staffer. That was, the, that was a claim that was made upon a, a mistaken understanding, I think, of, of what that letter was supposed to do. Uh, and then a bunch of <clears throat> signatories uh, retracted their support for the letter, and and it led to the um, the head of the Democratic Caucus, the Progressive Caucus, who who had originally put the letter together, saying, you know, this one never meant to go out actually uh, in this form. Uh, but so you know, we can debate the the sound judgment, if you like, or not, of having put this letter together. Uh, but what I found interesting, and, and what really puzzles me, is a, is a slightly more philosophical question in this case, which is about under under what circumstances do we think it's immoral or wrong to negotiate uh, diplomatically uh, with uh, either an enemy? So I think with enemies it's a bit more obvious. But in this case, we have to remember that technically the United States of America are not at war with Russia, and so uh, technically Russia is not an enemy state uh, for the United States of America. It, it's clearly a threatening, menacing state, and one that's not an ally and not a not a friend. But what does it mean when we think that we ought to not speak to them diplomatically at all? So other examples came to mind for me. There had been a letter very early on in uh, Britain, uh, in in the in, in the Russian uh, war in Ukraine, uh, where I think uh, some of the a similar kind of situation occurred, where the Stop the War Coalition had put together a letter that kind of called for a diplomatic resolution rather than. Uh, uh, kind of military uh, action or something like that. But again, that had been released uh, later than it had been intended to. And so it looked very uh, ill-judged because all of a sudden Russia had invaded Ukraine and it looked like uh, the the members of the Stop the War Coalition uh, kind of thought we should be talking when in fact, when someone invades, usually you think you have to be fighting. But nevertheless, there's this kind of um, history, if you like, where uh, often more left-wing politicians are seen to be willing to speak to uh, people in other countries, sometimes states, sometimes organizations, uh, to try to bring about peace. And they can be, in a way, judged or, or rejected or, or, or worse. Uh, they can be seen as outright uh, uh, morally uh, objectionable uh, in their actions when they engage with conversational partners who are themselves uh, either enemies of the country in which they're operating or just sort of on the wrong side of a particular conflict somewhere else uh, that we think we might want to bring some, some attention to. Uh, in particular, I remember the with Jeremy Corbyn, this was a, a part of uh, the criticisms that had emerged over time that some people took very seriously, was that Jeremy Corbyn had been seen as sort of overly sympathetic to the IRA uh, prior to 1997, and that he'd been uh, seen on the same stage as uh, people who are in Hezbollah and, and other organizations uh, that were considered to be terrorist organizations in Britain, uh, and therefore 
there was some sense in which there was a, a, at least a, a political taint uh, that he had to carry for having uh, even been seen side by side with these people. And his answer was, well, you know, my job was to bring uh, all of the conversational partners to the table to try to bring about peace. And, and that's what I'm uh, working towards in all these contexts. And so m- my question uh, is, a, is a pretty basic one. Uh, under what conditions is it morally uh, acceptable uh, to speak to uh, morally uh, abject uh, conversation partners for the sake of uh, bringing about some kind of positive change, so peace in this case, uh, or to put it even uh, more uh, moralistically, to bring about uh, a lessening of the moral wrong that the that the wrong moral actor is committing. Right? Under what circumstances is that okay? And I, I don't actually know. I don't have an answer. I just I just think that's an interesting question because of the way in which people respond to these situations, as if it's so. Uh, very clear that uh, we just ought not to speak to certain people uh, at certain times. And I can see practically why that's true, right? There's lots of practical reasons why that's true. But I just wondered at, at a principled level, how, how do we make that determination? Great. Thanks, Josh. Really interesting. Gerald? Yeah, so I think um, I think there is a puzzle here, actually. So two things, I mean, two, I think we can make two claims going in, and they both seem unremarkable. And it seems possible to state them both at the same time. But I think that there might be some hidden problems. So the first is we, I mean, uh, negotiations are desirable if that means bringing the hostilities to a close and preventing uh, escalation. I mean, of course, we want uh, wars to stop. Of course, we want that. So, So it seems, and if negotiations are the way of bringing the war to an end, then that's what we should um, engage in. But the second uh, desideratum um, is that that shouldn't involve uh, not blaming aggressors for their aggression. So it shouldn't involve conceding that, after all, Russia had a point. Now, you think you could keep both those desiderata happy. We could uh, press for peace without making the aggressor look better than it is. But I think there might be a hidden tension because if we've um, if we're pursuing negotiations, and then the reason why the negotiations uh, can't be successfully concluded is that, for example, Ukraine refuses to concede any territory or make any concessions to the Russia, then we can also say, uh, I think, that the reason, in part, for why those negotiations were unsuccessful is that Ukraine didn't do what it would have needed to do for them to have concluded successfully. And then it seems to be uh, there is some sort of sense in which, despite our intentions, we are blaming Ukraine for not being sufficiently flexible for allowing the negotiations to be concluded in a way that brings the fighting to an end. So it, it turns out, that the blame can, in some sense, be apportioned not just to the aggressor, Russia, but, but to the defender, Ukraine, as well. So I think that that is a problem. Uh, I'm not quite sure how it should be solved, though I'd, I'd like to think it can be solved, because I I agree, of course, that, that we have to seek peace. So we can't, we can't just let it play out for months and months with, you know, at the cost of thousands and thousands of lives. That that, that, that that seems intolerable. Um, but at the same time, we we surely don't want to budge on the 
asymmetrical attitude we take towards the people, uh, well, towards the actors involved in this conflict. I think, I mean, I think finally, th- th- there's something else that seems to be suggested by your remarks, Josh, which is a worry about associating with the bad guys. So perhaps associating with them uh, in ways that suggest that we seek, uh, you know, that we're in a conversation with them, a kind of politically mature conversation with them, endows them with a kind of false respectability when they might be little more than murderers or thugs. That's tricky. I think. I think first of all, it'd be helpful if we if we if we if we stop worrying about our own moral reputation. But but I think it's proper to to worry that they may be given this spurious sense of respectability. It, it's tricky, and I, I think it shows that you can be brought into a sort of statesmanlike uh, aura by by doing bad things. But but that has to be understood in the light of having to. Um, bring these hostilities to a close if we can. So I think it does look like a casualty, but I think it's probably an inescapable casualty. We just, in some cases, have to put up with it. Simon, do you want to jump in? So, I mean, what was running through my head was a a, a kind of different uh, example. So I thought the way you framed it, Josh, was really interesting, right? So that the USA is not strictly at war with, with Russia, which of course is true, but of course... The USA has given a lot of money to Ukraine and given a lot of armaments to to Ukraine, as have many other countries. So in a way, there's a kind of proxy war going on. So um, I think that's that's kind of important to to, to remember. As you're right, the the point about timing kind of is important there as well, because the war has escalated. And so in effect, we're we're funding a war, even if we're not fighting it ourselves, both the USA and, and UK and other countries. And the, the example that goes through my head to, 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 to switch examples and thinking about negotiations with with other people is what happened with uh, the IRA and the UK in, in this country. So, of course, we, we often think of the, the Good Friday Agreement in the 90s, and there John Major did quite a lot of work in public and, uh, you know, came to fruition during Tony Blair's premiership, but I mean, I think that was it was a it was a good kind of statesman statesman like act because they both took credit on the UK side, and of course there were lots of politicians in Northern Ireland, obviously who were standing there as well, not not least David Trimble and, and John Hume. But actually, a lot of the work started interestingly in the eighties, where you had some quite brave Tory MPs sitting with special branch minders and sitting with some some toughs from the IRA in very secret locations starting to, to think, well, you know, perhaps we just need to find a little bit of common ground. And there, there were no letters. And in fact, it was very, very secret. I mean, I think this is all, all right or correct. And I think a lot of the ground, not, I mean, there were many other moving parts in the Good Friday Agreement, but I mean, I think a lot of the ground was, was um, laid there. And so when you can see that, you know, the end result is something that, I mean, has been holding quite well <laughs> until you know recent um worries about brexit but actually you really did have to kind of you know in a very difficult situation a few tory mps just did decide well we just need to get in the same room as as these people and talk tough with them and then and then explore whether we can there's you know there's any possibility of this of this whole thing coming to an end is even if it's going to be a slow process so even though in in the way the point I want to make is there's kind of in front of house, and the letter being leaked and things going on the you know the six o'clock or ten o'clock news, 
uh, from around the around the the globe. There's all sorts of examples, and there's actually lots of work that has to go on behind the scenes through various uh, people. That's absolutely necessary, and I think it probably is morally necessary. I mean, I take Gerald's point about associations with uh, and legitimising people who are terrorists or, or rogue states or whoever they are, but I think it's probably morally necessary. And in fact, it goes back to an early discussion we had in a, in a, in a previous programme where sometimes we elect our representatives and they have to do really dirty things. <laughs> and part of the reason we're electing them is to do those dirty, horrible things on our behalf because we realise that life's complicated and, and messy. Um, so there's just some reflections from from me about about this this issue that negotiations are necessary and sometimes they're not pretty and we don't want to think about them and it's a good idea they're behind closed doors. Right. So there's a lot of things going on now that we've put there on the table, which I think is, is really helpful for me because actually I didn't even know how to begin to think about this. It was, I just had this feeling that there was a problem. I didn't even begin to to chart it out the way uh, both of you have done, and I, I'm really grateful because it helps me have a sense of well, what do I think now? You know. So one dimension is the public-private, right? So with the letter, it's a very public act, at least at, at, uh, once it was leaked, it becomes public. Who knows? M- maybe there had actually been some sharing of this information with the White House in a, in a way that was more appropriate before in a, in a private matter. And in some sense, uh, there's less discomfort with that, right? I think that's, I think that's generalized. Like, okay, well, this is just their opinion, and they wanted to, to let it be known to the White House. They wanted this to happen, something like that. But it being public uh, has that risk of uh, condoning uh, the bad actor, so in this case Russia, right, the, the aggressive entity, uh, by saying that, uh, you know, we, we, in a way we've punished them enough militarily, especially because right now Ukraine is in the ascent militarily. So there's a sense in which it, it comes as uh, at a strange moment. It almost looks as though uh, there just shouldn't be a military uh, victory. There should be a diplomatic kind of settled arrangement. Uh, and, and I think that's that's how it came across to me when I first saw it. I thought, well, that's a strange thing to be, to be saying. If, if military victory is in sight and Ukraine still wants to fight, uh, surely they should get all their lands back. All this kind of, you know, we should. There should be some way in which the aggressor gets nothing out of this, right? That's sort of the. the my initial reaction was that that it, it was a strange thing to suggest. My second reaction really uh, went into the that feeling of, about dirty hands, right? About the the fact that uh, in politics we tend to want those who hold a particularly executive uh, responsibility, so governments, <laughs> to act on behalf of the collective in such a way that sometimes they have to do things that we might consider to be uh, morally wrong or at least uh, imply some level of moral taint in order to achieve the good, right? Uh, and, and peace is the good, and sometimes you have to do certain things that you might think, well, that's kind of morally unsavory, but uh, if it achieves the good, then it's, it's justified. And, you know, I think where, I, where I'm coming from on, with, for, for this one is this, this concern that we can always be co-opted by a bad actor when uh, when we are in conversation with them. Something, something, I don't know if that's exactly the right word, but that sense of uh, being used to make the bad actor look more legitimate. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember if it was Gerald or Simon who said uh, a bunch of thugs doing bad things, and now they look like the kind of a legitimate government that we're having a conversation with. That's something that could always uh, happen, I think, when we are in, uh, in public conversation. Uh, but in the absence of uh, any kind of conversation, then it's also very difficult to know. Well, under what terms would there be uh, conditions for lasting peace, short of total military victory? And in uh, in the context of the Ukrainian uh, war, I think th- that would no longer be a war in Ukraine. That'd be a war in Russia. You know, total military victory victory is not going to be once Ukraine re- reclaims its uh, uh, political boundaries. Uh, it's it's it would basically have to imply Russia uh, being conquered in some way by 
uh, a foreign enemy, and then we could have some kind of political uh, uh, reconstruction, which where where there could be a uh, an international court to be able to try people who uh, actively uh, participated in, in war crimes and so on and so forth, uh, and we could we could bring them to account. But that that's not. I think no one no one really seriously wants that either, right? That's not at least as far as I'm concerned. I I, I don't think I know a single person who thinks that would be a good idea. Uh, given given Russia's nuclear arsenal and given the political situation, either it's it's not really desirable uh, to uh, to imagine a wholesale um, intervention uh, for the sake of conquering a very large nation that did act badly and that should probably be held to account and specific actors should be held to account. But it's difficult for us to know how to do that within the context of the the war as it is right now. So that the 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 final parallel for me, I guess, is with the Cold War. Right. So uh, a lot of people said this. We're in a new kind of Cold War, which, which sounds true to me, uh, but I'm not entirely sure what it means other than that we have renewed discomfort in diplomatic relations between NATO allies and, and Russia and that there's a proxy war going on. Right. That's very, that, that I think Simon said that that seems sounds about right. Ukraine is somehow a, a proxy war between two blocks. The, the Cold War came to an end in part because the USSR and uh, specifically the United States of America uh, did make overtures to one another, both publicly at times to, to demonstrate the willingness to, to not seek conflict and very significantly in private. So the, although the officially the, those states did not maintain diplomatic relations in any public fora, I think bar UNESCO, I think the, it was only education, science, and culture where they really were willing to overtly directly talk to one another. But part of the, the, the interesting story is that, uh, as, at least a story I was told, I'm not entirely sure if this is true because I've never read it anywhere, but it's something I was told by people who were at UNESCO at the time, that, that UNESCO played a significant role in enabling a conversation between these state actors at the highest level that then made it easier to have the, the, the conversations that led to the end of the Cold War. So I, I guess it's just a, one of those questions about where are we? Are we at the end of something or are we at the beginning of something? I'm, I'm not sure. Um, and, and are the decisions of the states that represent us able to affect that? Or are we only responding to the will of, uh, of a dictator? If, if we can say that, you know, Putin seems to be acting like a dictator. He doesn't seem to be democratically accountable in, in his own nation. And, and, and so we have to wonder, are we, are we only responsive here? Are we in some way able to act such as to bring about some situation that would be better? And I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm just wrestling with this. Gerald? I mean, there is a feeling that the political tectonic plates are shifting and it all looks rather worrying. I don't think I have any special insight to bear, though. I mean, I, I just have, feel this kind of foreboding. But, I mean, on, on some of the other points that you made, Josh, and, and you, Simon, I think... I think you're right that probably the way to go to avoid endowing bad actors or aggressors with spurious respectability and in order to avoid kind of rewarding them for their aggression, but also pursuing peace and, and into hostilities, it looks as though clandestine meetings are the way forward. So, so the example of British MPs meeting the IRA much earlier on uh, than the Good Friday Agreement would seem to be the way to go. Now, in some ways, this encourages a rather, you know, in some ways it might kind of add to the reputation of politicians for being dishonest, saying one thing and doing another, consorting with terrorists, with fighters, with enemies of the state, with people who have victimised members of 
the population that these MPs represent. And that looks bad. It just seems to sort of add to the litany of complaints one can make against politicians. They seem not just dishonest or out for themselves, but kind of, um, from one light, this just seems like a, like a deeper problem. They're, they're associating secretly with really, really bad people. So that's going to add to politicians' reputational problems. However, uh, I think you're right, Simon, that it's morally necessary to pursue uh, a course of peace. And, uh, and, and this was the best of a bad set of options. Uh, meet them, progress, uh, understanding, see what they're after, see what they could live with, but do it on the down low. Uh, that, that does seem to be the best solution to the problem. I, I mean, it's too late to do that for the Russia-Ukraine conflict. That has to be done in public, I guess. But there's going to be quite a bit behind the scenes, I imagine, even there. And I I don't blame people for trying to do it because because we, we do need to bring this conflict to uh, a close. And, you know, in ways that don't dishonour Ukraine, but in ways which Putin and the Kremlin will agree to. Uh, it, it'll, it'll be pretty messy and impure, but it's better to have an impure solution than, than to have no solution at all. Listen, that was really interesting. Let's uh, leave things there for that discussion, and uh, we'll see you in the next segment when we'll be throwing our food around. <laughs> And welcome back. Okay, so let's move on to another topic and let's think about art and protest. There have recently uh, been some protests in support of environmental causes. Uh, People have thrown soup over Van Gogh's sunflowers and mashed potato over Monet's haystacks. Uh, Gerald, you raised this issue for us. Do you want to introduce it? Yeah, so uh, there have been several such protests. I mean, I've been to the Just Stop Oil um, website and... um, uh, there have been a few dozen, I mean, mainly road protests uh, blocking traffic um, in London. But, but these, also these incidents that, that tend, have been very heavily reported. Uh, there's also the adding cake to the waxwork of, of King Charles in Madame Tussauds. I, I mean, I've got a few, I'm a bit puzzled by it all. And I think I'm puzzled because I'm not quite sure how the elements all get stitched together. So we've got the aim of the Just Stop Oil movement. It's to uh, stop the extraction of fossil fuels to encourage um, us to go over to green energy sources. And of course, there's a story about why fossil fuels are so damaging, why we do need to shift energy sources and consumption in other ways. So there's the aim. And there are the incidents of defacing paint. Well, it didn't deface the painting, but it it did... um, it, the tomato soup went over the glass of Perspex cover, or defacing the the waxwork, altering it. But they need to be linked in some way, and and, and I assume that the link is one of create the creation of publicity. So by doing by performing these acts, these protesters create the publicity for the aim. They 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 encourage us to pay attention to the aims for which they have uh, undertaken these actions. They create publicity, but it's not quite clear how they all go together. And I think what's missing really 
is from this justificatory picture is an idea of fittingness. The target needs to be fitting in some sense. What is it about a painting by Van Gogh that makes it fitting to interfere with our ability to see that painting? What is it about the waxwork of King Charles which explains why that is defaced in order to get us to do something else? I think there's just, there's just a, I can't quite see why it's fitting to do that. I mean, look, let me put it this way. Let's imagine that I was in the National Gallery at the time, and then I realised that these protesters were about to splash tomato soup over the glass or perspex cover of that painting. What if I stopped them? Would, would I be justified in doing that? If I did that, that might have created equal news publicity. Would that have, within this justificatory picture, have been just as compelling as as, as what they did? If, if that's the case, I find it odd because it looks as though the, the publicity-generating aim is offering too little supervision of the acts which are supposedly justified by it. I think the other problem is that if, it, if the aim is to create publicity, then you are at the mercy of whatever response it actually creates. What if people come to the conclusion that even though the aim might be good, the means to that end are inadequate. It's, this is just annoying, self-indulgent vandalism. That's, that also seems possible. I mean, there's a Q&A on the Just Stop Oil website that investigates, well, that, that describes what they're up to, and it's helpful in a way. But what they're up to is uh, they're, they're employing the tactics by their own description. They're, they're, they're pushing cultural buttons to provoke challenge and shock. That's what they say they're up to. And what they're doing is meant to get us to ask certain questions. Why would we mind the defacement of a great painting when we are less upset by something of much greater value, like the desecration of the planet or famines which are created indirectly by these patterns of energy usage. Fair enough. But the thing is, when someone destroys something of lesser value in order to, to get you to think about why you're not more exercised by the destruction of something of greater value, then I think we can properly ask, well, who are you to do that? It, it just seems or there's a risk that the reaction will be, well, that just makes you obnoxious. Who made you this kind of policeman? So it might backfire. That, that's the other worry. And I suppose a third worry is that I can't see any inbuilt proportionality limits. So the protesters who, uh, who, who threw the tomato soup in a national gallery said, and, and I'm prepared to believe them, that they wouldn't have defaced the painting. Uh, they were aware, of course, that it, it was a glass or perspex cover. But it's still the case that one painting is of lesser value than the aims which they are supposedly engaged in activism to promote. So, so what stops them from uh, destroying a painting? They could still ask the question, why are you more exercised by the defacement or destruction of a great painting than you are by this rather bigger issue, the desecration of the globe, um, the burdens created in the global south, and so on. So there seems to be kind of nothing to stop the uh, protests from escalating if the justificatory picture they've presented for us 
is the one that they're operating with, then the vandalism can get worse. So I'm not quite sure where that's going to go either, the the kind of escalation of the protests. So they're just some thoughts I had. Thanks, Gerald. Josh, why don't you uh, kick us off with some responses? Sure. So I guess I should start by putting my cards on the table and say that I, I'm I'm pretty sympathetic to Just Stop Oil and many of the youth movements uh, and, and movements in general that are trying to raise attention and change uh, the way in which governments are, are tackling the climate crisis, largely because uh, governments are either acting too little or not acting at all. And so I think uh, we're given what we're facing, there is a sense in which uh, those questions of proportionality feel more complex than in a lot of other uh, political struggles. Uh, in the case of Just Stop Oil, they do have one proximal goal that I think is is worthy of mention and is really what they say they're trying to do right now, which is to uh, get uh, particularly the British government to stop releasing new oil and gas licenses. And uh, so in a sense, they are actively invested in trying to achieve a, a concrete achievable goal, which we could make sense of uh, as a as a next step without kind of asking us to always think about the very long-term goal uh, or, or the bigger goal that's very hard to imagine how we can fully achieve uh, from any one uh, uh, role in society or even uh, any one policy a government could adopt, which is to, to leave fossil fuels behind and, and you know, go into a fully renewable uh, energy system. So, okay, with, with that said, um, I think Gerald's put his finger on lots of really interesting uh, considerations in political struggles. Uh, historically, civil disobedience was uh, framed as uh, a tactic that was used uh, because it was proportional uh, and because uh, it could uh, shame uh, the bad actor into uh, shifting uh, its behavior. Typically, the bad actor was government, but it, you know, there's a sense in which it could be more diffuse than that. And often, uh, civil disobedience was used in such a way as to break the law that was itself considered to be immoral, right? And so the, the fittingness had, uh, at least in a lot of the context of the, the American civil rights movement in the 1960s, uh, what was really at the heart of it. And that's partially because uh, I think uh, the, the main uh, actors there uh, really were rooted in a uh, clearly theological worldview. Martin Luther King Jr. was the leader of that worldview and of that movement. And uh, it was a principled uh, strategy. It wasn't, uh, if you read uh, King's uh, writings on this, the, the strategic value of it was just as important, it was kind of equally important to the theological meaning of the action because it demonstrated a kind of solidarity with, with one another and a way of being in community with one another. and and. and uh, I think, you know, one of the things we have to wrestle with is that we don't have societies that are as widely uh, committed to common religious or even moral worldview as we maybe did in the 1960s. And uh, that therefore finding instruments and finding uh, uh, narratives and uh, really being able to show uh, with a kind of morality play, spectatorial morality play, uh, why something is wrong is, is in a sense harder because uh, there's more of a sense that we are diffuse as a public, uh, that we are in disagreement with one another, that the things we care about are more uh, uh, varied. And therefore, I think that it becomes tempting and, and maybe even strategically uh, expedient. So I, I, you know, I'm not sure, but I think it's, a, it's worthy of investigation to be in a kind of shocking uh, uh, method, that the goal is just to shock by any means, rather than to have really 
you know, looked for a fitting way to shock that would really demonstrate the morality play we want people to understand. And, and it's partially because we don't think we have a common audience enough, I, I, you know, when you, when you kind of think that way. With that said, Gerald also included the, the question of uh, how it will be received, right? And, and one thing that happened with the painting, uh, the, soup, the soup and the painting, was that a lot of people's reaction was that that was sort of a step too far. Uh, I think, for what it's worth, uh, it was interesting to notice that in Britain, the initial reporting didn't mention the Perspex glass. And uh, in, in other countries, it did. So I also read French news. And in French news, that was the that part of the headline was, you know, they throw soup at the Perspex glass, uh, uh, protecting the painting, not at the painting. So uh, I suspect that also leads to a different kind of reaction based on the initial frame in which you report the event, Right. But equally, the per- with the news stories saying that it was behind a perfect glass, it led to less news uh, significance than when they didn't mention the perfect glass. And so, uh, you know, there is a sense in which the activists were right uh, that, you know, kind of doing something shocking uh, led to a lot of attention being paid to it. Whereas when we kind of admit that it's shocking, but within limits, and, you know, they did worry a little bit about when they were destroying something of significance, all of a sudden it kind of loses its power uh, as, as, a, as a topic of discussion. So my, my sense, less from the perspective of, you know, should I intervene in the room, right? I think that's an important question, but I actually, I'm, I'm not, I don't yet know what I think about that. But my sense of what we as a public uh, might want to uh, think about when looking at the conditions in which civic action is um, uh, is going to take place uh, is that in Britain in particular there are you know there's this uh, there's a bill I can't, and I'm not entirely sure if it's actually passed through the Houses of Parliament yet or if it's still being discussed at various levels but there's a bill that significantly constrains the right of protest uh, and there have already been bills in the past that have uh, in Britain that that led to a reduction of uh, freedom of protest and I think that. Uh, when that's the case, then proportionality is also harder to find because, uh, in a sense, we're creating a, a, a political context in which uh, the government is less committed to making sure that people's uh, expression of political beliefs is indeed free and protected. And so, you know, it, there's this kind of escalation when governments don't want to hear uh, from their from their public uh, what they have to say, and then. Uh, kind of what by any means necessary becomes the logic, and so that I'm using a phrase uh, consciously that was used by Malcolm X, who was the uh, the great uh, other uh, civil rights uh, leader uh, for uh, the African American cause in the 1960s in America, and his argument uh, was uh, that to overcome the injustice that African Americans had suffered, one had to be willing to take uh, whatever action was necessary to end the suffering of that community. And that thinking about means uh, uh, in this sort of very moralistic way and worrying about the way in which we use those means was itself a subjection to uh, what we would now probably call a colonial mindset, you know, a sense of uh, not having the right to just uh, use the the effective tools to bring about the effective change. And that instead, uh, real liberation just required using any means that allowed that liberation to occur. And you might argue that the climate crisis and its consequences, both present and future are already significant enough to say that you know if that that the means that we're going to be willing to employ just need to be the most expedient ones because we are facing the most fundamental threat to all human life and to all human communities now i think part of it what's difficult to get our heads around is the scale of it that that's really difficult for us to handle and it makes for less of a good dramatic narrative 
because we're all in the story in some way. It's harder to exactly identify who the bad guys are and who the good guys are. And because we're all in some way interested in uh, being able to live lives of uh, relative comfort. I think, you know, this is not an unreasonable thing to say. Most people would like to live lives of relative comfort. And right now, the means for living those uh, lives of relative comfort happen to be uh, dependent on fossil fuels. That's, that's pretty much the world we live in right now. And so how do we shift the conversation to people being willing to imagine living uh, lives of relative comfort that are completely divorced from fossil fuels is, is very difficult. It's a difficult story to tell, and it's a difficult long road to shifting hearts and minds, and, and actually most importantly, to shifting uh, the levers of power and large corporations who are, in fact, extremely responsible. They're overwhelmingly responsible for uh, carbon emissions, much more than private citizens as consumers. And so, you know, we, we really are at a moment where at least through all of the actions that have been taken over the last 10 years from Extinction Rebellion onwards, there is a growing awareness of the complexities of uh, how to begin to tackle the climate crisis. Uh, not, uh, one of another very important voice is obviously Greta Thunberg uh, and uh, at least in, in Europe and in, in, in the global north. Uh, and there are also voices in the global south. Vanessa Nakate is a very important uh, leader uh, in uh, Africa who uh, has been very effective in mobilizing, in fact, faith-based, typically Christian, uh, young people who re recognize that uh, the climate crisis is an existential threat to uh, the way of life of many people already today uh, uh, in, in, in that part of the world. And uh, also that uh, it is in fact a moral requirement to, to do something, that we are called to do something. Figuring out the what is really hard. So this is a, good, this is a very good conversation. Uh, but so my, my sense is because I don't really have a very clear answer, I tend to kind of be agnostic about it. My sense is I'm not sure, but it seems on the whole to do you know, less, less harm than good. So it seems okay, but, I, but that seems kind of unsatisfactory. And Gerald was asking a much better question than that a much more principled question under what circumstances uh, is it fitting is it appropriate uh, to take certain actions and that's an important question too i just i just don't think i yet have a meaningful answer so just some thoughts from me and then i'll bring gerald back in so yeah i think you raise a really great question and and then set of thoughts gerald i mean again so some examples that that run through my head again sorry they're the uk examples but you know josh has been talking about the, the uk us context which i think is it's just as important. And I was just thinking about kind of a different sort of set of protests and different political uh, moments, and that was the right of women to vote, right? So going back, you know, over 100 years. And there, you know, there are some famous examples. Clearly, they were doing something that many of us would now agree was was the right thing to do. And it was it was absolutely right and proper that, 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 women, that the franchise should be extended and women should get the vote. And there are some of those examples which were very much fitting and justified in relation to the cause, namely chaining yourself outside the Houses of Parliament. That would seem to be a good thing to do. But of course, there are some also famous examples of people getting killed at the Derby, right? And the, the Derby itself doesn't seem to have anything to do with with um, votes for women. It was just a great big event and they just did it because they got publicity, right? There's nothing, there's no link, justificatory link between rights for, for women and uh, and a horse race, right? Uh, I mean, actually, the thing that was running through my head all the way through you were speaking, Gerald, and also building up this episode is that is that old line from Alexis Sale, stand-up comic. So he was, this was in the 80s, and he was just getting very annoyed with everyone doing things for charity and 
people doing this for charity and this doing that for charity. Charity justifies everything. And he said, you know, if Adolf Hitler had invaded Poland to support his local hospital, everyone would have said it would be okay, right? I mean, that's clearly, <laughs> clearly not not the case. But, but so, so I think then just thinking about what Josh was 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 going on about, then perhaps the justificatory link that that fittingness you were talking about can be weaker if the stakes are a lot higher in the end, right? Thinking about these different moving parts, right? So I was struck by what he was saying about Malcolm X and the and the civil rights movement towards the end, and of course, arguably. You know that the, the stakes are, are even higher when it comes to, to climate change. So perhaps anything that gets publicity is 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 justified. But even so, you'd still want them to be finding some things that were fitting. So rather than just throwing soup over over sunflowers or or mashed potato over over haystacks, you know you might think, well, if you're going to target an art exhibition, do something that BP or Shell are sponsoring. I mean, that would seem to be the obvious thing to do. Uh, I mean, what's interesting is you know subsequent to those. Those examples, there's been some graffiti on think tanks in Tufton Street, which people think have some links to the oil industry. Uh, there's clearly things you can do with some companies in the in the city as well, but it's not going to have quite the same publicity and the shock value on on you know your nightly news program. So, so I mean, so so one thing that there's, that you know I'd be playing around with myself is the justification link. I think is really important, but it can be weaker. If the if the stakes are a bit higher, but I don't know whether whether that could be sustained under intense scrutiny. Why don't you come back in, Gerald? Yeah. Um, well, this is all really really interesting, actually, and there's so much to think about. And I mean, let me go back to a point Josh made. Uh, so it was better for Just Stop Oil that what they did in the National Gallery was misreported. So when it was thought, as it was in British outlets, as I myself thought actually when I, when I first saw the footage um, that the painting itself had been defaced obviously that's going to create more publicity than the actual version of the story in which they were careful not to deface a painting but only to throw tomato soup over the perspex covering for it that makes me a bit worried because because then it looks as though we have some sort of alienation between what they did even to create publicity and the creation of publicity i mean the worse it seemed the better for them even though they weren't doing the worst thing they were doing the better thing uh, they're doing something that didn't in fact destroy or deface the actual painting that worries me a bit so i mean i, I think i mean just standing back a little bit there seem to be two routes uh, one is the pure publicity route so just do whatever it takes to get publicity and then my worry about that is that it starts to look, in justificatory terms, incoherent. If it's just about the creation of publicity, then that doesn't control for how you respond to it. You might actually, you, be, you might become more aware of the aims for which they're doing it, but you're also more likely to be repelled by the means they take in order to advance that end. And so they could be further back than they wanted to be. So th- there's that route, the pure publicity route. And, and and second, there's a kind of fittingness route. And I think, to be honest, um, all these policies, at some point, they're going to pick up speed from some sort of notion of liability. So this is a big problem for all of us. Those of us in the West have comfortable lives. So we're all in some way complicit with a system that gives us comfortable lives 
by using fossil fuels that then create these uh, almost unimaginable headaches in store. I mean, not just in store, the consequences are already happening and they're particularly visible in the global south. So at some point, I think I think the uh, trajectory of this makes us all quasi-liable. Uh, that that that's the justificatory structure that they will inherit, and then, but of course, the, the, even at that point, there, there's a worry that if the message is we did this to you, this affects you, and you are asking for it, in some broad sense, you are asking for it. Well, again, there's more than one way to respond to that. You can think that's true. I've got to be part of a movement that does things better because I was asking for it, wasn't I? Or the response can be. How, how dare you do that and and pretend that I that I deserve to be treated in this way or pretend that the art I love uh, should be desecrated in this way or, or at least that my viewing of it should be compromised in this way? So so look, the, the, there there are different routes to go and and each one is perilous, but it seems to me that the fittingness concern really is important. Otherwise, it just becomes incoherent and therefore. The route that has to be uh, carefully negotiated is one that recovers some sort of role for quasi-liability or at least involvement that we shouldn't ignore. I, I also agreed with Josh that the governmental bill that quells protests is is unhelpful. I mean, it might be unhelpful and objectionable for many reasons, but 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 one of the problems is that it compresses the options available for non-violent protest. So, so that is another problem arising from those bills, which, which really haven't received enough scrutiny in the media. I have a question for Gerald. Okay, Sorry, I'm just curious. So I think the coherence constraint makes sense in a, in a coherent society. And I worry that we live in a deeply incoherent society, that from the way in which the media operates, the way in which governments make decisions, the way in which public opinion is formed, uh, and affected by sometimes outright disinformation campaigns by sometimes foreign actors or just by private actors, and, so, and sometimes just by accidental kind of uh, sharing of conspiracy theories and, and kind of poor epistemic practices uh, on various uh, social media. But honestly, not just, you know, I, I also interpersonally, people also share poor epistemic practices sometimes interpersonally. So incoherence feels like it's the rule rather than the exception in the world that I live in at least, uh, for, for forming political action. And I wonder in that context whether that coherence constraint still applies. It's a very good challenge. It's a good question. I suppose my cautious, I suppose slightly bourgeois answer is um, we have to recover what coherence we can because if we're going to think about something, then we must think about it coherently. We, we, can't, we can't aim to think about something incoherently. And... The elements of incoherence in our world and dislocation and dysfunction can only be, I mean, they only merge against at least an imagined background of what it would be for things to be coherent. You know, there are there are elements of coherence in the systems we have. It's not, it's not, it's not that we've, you know, gone back to the state of nature yet. Uh, so I don't think it's helpful to pretend that things are more incoherent than they actually are. I mean, Yes, we have grave and profound problems, but I don't think we've reached the state of actual incoherence. I mean, I certainly hope not. Yeah, and in fact, I think it is a really good question, Josh, that you just raised. And I think I'm, I'm probably with Gerald here. 
and perhaps a kind of you know different point even though you know each individual action is just a a grain of sand in our heap the more actions that are high profile like this that just seem to be random and just we need to do anything to get people to wake up i mean I, that that itself is a justification but the, but the the more that they're just floating free of the thing that we're protesting against the more it's going to add to that sense of incoherence um which itself won't be good so so for example you know a different sort of protest but still an environmental protest rather than throwing food over over paintings or indeed over the perspex that's covering paintings i mean there are other rights and wrongs here but you know actually gluing yourself to roads to stop cars driving along at least is linked to you know petrol right and oil and gas um and so there's you know actually targeted protests at least have a have a kind of coherence to them and in fact if we're just allowing kind of any random wild act because it gets results then that's just going to give us more of a sense of this incoherence uh and that's and, and not part of a kind of commonality where we can protest but also we can solve problems together so that's that's my it's my thought i feel like there's a very loose parallel here between um the two of you representing very well the kind of bertram russell critique of of american pragmatists <laughs> people that i am an inheritor of whereby you know pragmatists tend to have this view that if it's expedient in some way it's doing the work it's supposed to do and and you know russell famously thought that people like me believed in, in things that hardly made any sense at all <laughs> but I, so i guess I, I i am interested and uh i am worried by the notion that we as sort of private actors or as individual citizens, so you know, we can be either consumers or even just when we act publicly as citizens, that we are able to be kind of that individual point of inflection that brings about more coherence rather than less, right? I, I think it's, it's attractive. Don't get me wrong. I, I like the story. I really like it. Um, and I think particularly because of the, the widely, I think most people think of it as Judeo-Christian background. I, I think of it as uh, actually Judeo-Christian and Muslim because I actually think those three religions have this in common and that we, we those three religions are remarkably similar. So it's an Abrahamic uh, background, really. I think we have an Abrahamic tendency to believe that the individual uh, uh, and the individual act or moment can have this sort of fundamental uh, effect on, on, on the lives of uh, great communities across space and time. And maybe that's true. But I think that part of what, uh, there is a, a, a great deal of discomfort with is that that doesn't feel true anymore uh, for a lot of people. That feels false. That feels like a lie. And that what a lot of people feel is that as individuals, we are living in pervasive anime. We are living in uh, pervasive uh, isolation from community. And that, there, that the fact that um, the mechanics that used to sustain the sense that we are a society are either strained or no longer present leads to a lot of people having the sense that just there really isn't a society. There really isn't a community that would listen to me as an individual. And so it really just becomes to how do I capture the mob? How do I capture the crowd? Uh, How do I get the attention of a a large group of mildly interested people who are mostly concerned about things that are much closer to home for them rather than what should we do together, right? Even that question, what should we do together for a lot of people feels extremely distant uh, and maybe maybe that was always the case, but I think there's a perception amongst uh, uh, at least the younger generation. I see it in my in my own students. You know, they often directly ask me about these kinds of questions, partially because I teach a, a, a third year module that's kind of on political methods and means, and so you know it's it's relevant. But also because they're really anxious about the feeling they don't matter, the feeling that they don't matter. That that's really 
pregnant for them. And so what we see in, in an intervention like the uh, the tomato soup and the, and the Van Gogh painting is that, that that act all of a sudden is given the significance of mattering. Now, does it have the result we want? We don't know yet, right? M- maybe it will, maybe it won't. I'm not sure. Um, and uh, d- d- is it in itself uh, repugnant? Maybe, right? There's good reason. If, if there was no plexiglass, I think it'd be more obvious to say, well, there's something repugnant about destroying uh, an important cultural artifact. You know, I think most of us would feel that pretty easily. Uh, but then it's, you know, it's, it's mitigated by that. Regardless, in, in the context, what we get is a singular action of two fairly young women able to do something that feels resonant uh, and, and has impact. Whereas a lot of people's experience in life is that doing good has next to no impact. Being kind and considerate has next to no impact. Now, I don't think that's true, by the way, just to be clear. I actually don't think that's true. I think that the bonds that link us and the ordinary actions that we take are essential and are fundamental to giving us the means to keep that bearing with coherence, right? And keep that bearing with doing the good. Um, I think we have that in an ordinary way. And I don't think society doesn't exist anymore. I think it does. I think people are fundamentally committed to one another in much deeper ways than they're able to articulate. Uh, but I think that that's not reflected back to us by the media and the political elites that uh, govern and speak to us. I think that those groups have decided that that's a bad narrative for them. Uh, and I don't know if it, how conscious it is. I don't know how active it is. But I think we can recognize that the way in which the current elites that, that run most liberal democracies speak to the public, don't feel that comfortable with actually trying to inspire us to recognize the good in our actual practices and to take control of our collective lives, that there's a sense in which that's not really what they want from us. So better to pit us against one another, better to, to, to choose what some people might call culture war, warrior topics, you know, uh, or, or, and, and, and really focus on the things that divide rather than the things that, that, that unify and realize that when we are in earnest trying to do good, most of the time we actually have similar cares and considerations. The specific policies to adopt are complicated. That's that's also the truth. It, it is actually not a simple thing to do to say what policies should we adopt to stop climate change. It's, it's, it's experts know for what it's worth. Experts have very good answers to that, uh, but ordinary people don't tend to, and they tend to not have much awareness of those policies. So one thing I'm really grateful to Just Stop as a movement for is that, in fact, that is a very common sense policy. In fact, it's in uh, uh, the last IPCC report that there should be uh, no more uh, licenses for new oil and gas in uh, the, the wealthy uh, countries of the world. Uh, as of 2020, that just sh- should stop. There, there should no longer be uh, new exploitations. Because that's the only way we're going to reach the target. And once once that's really clear, that is the expert view. And yet that the policy is uh, almost unheard until a bunch of young people interrupt football matches, uh, stick themselves to various objects and, you know, capture our imagination by doing, you know, things that don't necessarily make a lot of sense, but they, they interrupt. And then at least some of us are able to go, oh, that is, that is kind of a good policy. And what? It's backed by the experts? Ooh, that sounds kind of like something we should be doing. Why are we not already doing this? And I'm not saying that that's winning the day because I'm not that optimistic. I think there's a lot of road to travel. But there's an intervention that, at least in my life uh, and in the communities that I belong to, has led to a lot of people that I didn't think cared at all about the climate uh, consciously caring. And realizing that there are some common sense policies that we just should adopt. And so we need people who make us aware of those. I'm not sure how they should do it, but we really need them to do something. Great. Thanks, Josh. Uh, Listen, let's leave it uh, there, both of you. A really great discussion across all three uh, segments. We should should thank both of you for for giving up your time. So, uh, Gerald, thanks for coming on again. Thanks very much, Simon. It's great to be here.
Uh, and Josh, thanks uh, for appearing as well. Thanks to you both. It was really fun. I really enjoyed the conversation. I look forward to coming back as soon as I can. Great. And, and as soon as you're happy. <laughs> and thanks to you for listening. And also, no thanks at all to children who kept on wanting breakfast and cats who wanted to leave rooms and to dodgy internet connections. If you've got this far, <laughs> then you'll uh, not notice any of those things and the edit will have been seamless. Uh, and all being well, not only will you enjoy this episode, you'll join us again for another episode of Philosophy Takes on the News. Music